And if you'll turn with me um, in your worship guide uh, to our sermon text from Romans chapter 8. If you are uh, visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. You can find out some more about our church and get on our email newsletter by just grabbing one of the, um, the, the cards in the pew rack in front of you. Fill it out. You can drop it in the offering plates, which you'll find up here in the front or in the back there. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read, we've printed for you uh, verses 9 through 25 if you don't have a Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible of your own, just grab one of those pew Bibles and take it with you. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands and in your house um, that you might have it in your heart. Uh, For God really does transform the most broken places by His Word And so we're here in Romans chapter 8, and I'm just going to read verses 9 through 17. I'm not going to finish out 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, as we ponder anew what the Almighty could do if with His love He befriends us. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Would we join with me as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you were crucified for sins. And then when it was finished... You were raised to new life. And you sit at the right hand of the Father, now reigning over all creation. Your kingdom has no end. You have been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And your word brings new life. And so we pray, speak to us today by your Holy Spirit, make your words come with power to create something new in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, years ago, Vox, the journalism website, did a deep dive into the most highlighted lines in Kindle books. This is what happens when we do everything online. People can find out just about anything they want about us. And the most highlighted line of any of the books that are read on Kindle is from The Hunger Games. And it reads this way. Because some things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. That resonates with just about everyone. Sometimes, it might be a little bit of an understatement, sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. Well, for most of us, that happened about the third minute of the day, just about every day. But here's the, here's the hope of the resurrection That the promise of Jesus is that he is the king who orders all of life. That he has been raised victorious and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the weight of the world isn't on any of our shoulders. On his. And he's equipped to deal with all things. Not surprised by anything. Not overwhelmed by anything. But what we really need when things happen to us that we aren't equipped with in our lives is hope. Hope that when things happen to us that we aren't equipped to deal with, that we can be pulled into the future. This is what Jerome Gropman was a Harvard Medical School professor who often had to diagnose patients with devastating diagnosis like if you make it to Harvard Medical School professor if you're a patient and you make it to his doorstep it's not because you have something easy to figure out so he was in a position where he often had to reveal to people just the most utterly devastating news and out of those experiences he penned a book called the anatomy of hope and this is his definition of hope I think it's a a tremendous working definition he says He says, basically, the way I think of hope is that hope is the ability to see a path to the future. He says, imagine you're facing dire circumstances and you need to know that everything that's blocking or threatening you, you need to know that. So you need to know the threats that are available and then you need to see a path through them, a potential path to get you where you want to be. And once you see that, there's this, he noticed a tremendous uplift in the emotional state of the people. And he makes this observation. I think hope has been and always will be a heart of the heart of medicine and healing. But we could not live without hope. We still have to come back to this profound human need to believe that there is a possibility to reach a future that it's better than the one present. It's a great statement, but that's just hoping and hope. It's wishful thinking. And you see what what the hope of Easter is, is a hope that is grounded. It's the type of solid ground that you can cast the anchor of your soul into the finished work of Jesus. In Jesus' resurrection, what Paul is telling us is that the future has broken into the darkness of the present. And Jesus has broken the curse of sin. 
The grave couldn't hold down the Son of God because the God brought the curse of sin to a close on the shoulders of Jesus. At, at Easter, we don't just celebrate a, a dead man coming back to life, which would be pretty amazing if you saw it happen, but that happens repeatedly throughout the Bible. Dead people actually come back to life repeatedly throughout the Bible. At one point, a man is killed in war and just thrown onto the bones of the prophet, and he springs back to life. Jesus himself brings dead people back to life more than once, repeatedly throughout the history of God's working in redemption, dead people come back to life. What's remarkable about the resurrection of Jesus is not that a dead man came back to life. It's that a sin-cursed man was raised from the grave. One of the great gifts of Easter, as Paul points out, is that in the gift of the Holy Spirit, God has brought the future into the darkness of our present lives. And he's tethered us with an unbreakable bond to the future in which Jesus lives and he'll come again. Or as he says elsewhere, this is the hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that unbreakable bond of the gift of the Holy Spirit is freely given to any who would give themselves to Jesus. On the night before Jesus dies on the cross, he says to his people, they've gathered around him. They've literally staked their entire lives on Jesus. They've left homes, they've left businesses, they've left um, all things he's promised Look, the future is bright for you. You will be persecuted like I've been persecuted. And as he's telling them, what is imminent is that your king and leader will be killed by the officials. He says to them as well, I'm going to give you in this moment of darkness someone even better than me. A helper. An advocate will be within you a warrior who will fight your battles and win your war. Someone even better than me who will be in you. The Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In 2007, a hurricane hit South Florida. Norena was, was there. Her home was severely damaged. She was an elderly woman. Received an insurance settlement at that moment. The repair work began. And then the money ran out. This was in 2007 when another... This story is arising out of 2007 when another hurricane hit. When the money ran out from the first settlement, she had no electricity. She had been living with power ever since. And in between those two events... When money ran out, she had no power. Without money to finish the repairs, she just got by with a small lamp and a single burner. Her neighbors didn't even seem to notice the absence of power in her life. She was just going through the motions of life, completely without access to power for 15 years. Can you imagine the, the, the heat of South Florida in the summertime, oppressively 
unbearable, unable to take a shower, unable to cook her food over anything but a lamp for 15 years. Until someone took notice of her and just drew a strong, a thin line of wire from the pole outside of her house to her home. The power had been there all along as she lived in the cold, dark, oppressive hopelessness. And you see, if you're relying on your goodness or your morality or your own strength to overcome the brokenness in your lives, this is where all of us are at. But to connect with Jesus isn't just to connect with someone outside of us. To give your life to Jesus connects us to the power of the new creation. The power where God is making all things right in an untetherable bond. He gives his Holy Spirit the same spirit that Paul reminds us raised Jesus from the dead. And so this is what I want us to see this morning. That the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit ushers the followers of Jesus into a completely new era or epoch of life. This is what the Spirit does. Given to any who would believe in Jesus, he binds us to the future hope. Of the new creation. See the the resurrection of Jesus. As I said. Was greater than just a dead man coming to life. It was a sin cursed man. Coming to new life. It ushers in a new era. A new epic. A new stage of living. A living that is characterized. By power through life. And the spirit. So look at verse 9. Paul says this. You however. Are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you've given yourself to him. Then he has sent his other helper warrior who dwells in us. If in fact you are in the spirit. The spirit dwells in you. Then he goes on. He says verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Here's what Paul's saying. And he says, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's saying the resurrection of Jesus was an epic changing event. And you no longer are in the event of being cursed by sin, but in the event of Jesus breaking that curse and living new life. Here's what I mean by an epic changing event. An epic changing event is a historical event that changes everything and ushers in a new era. For instance, the American Revolution was an epic changing event. There was a before and after. It changed everything. Before, the colonies were ruled by Britain. Now, we're governed by a constitution. Before, we are under a king. Now, We're free. The resurrection of Jesus was such an epic changing event. Having children is also an epic changing event. Getting married, as we will see, is also an epic changing event. It ushers in a new, completely new era of time. And when that happens in history, it changes all the way that life is lived. 
You see, when God acts, He always acts in history, in actual events. And when He acts, it actually changes everything. So if you've got your Bible, look back to verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And what Paul means here is by the flesh is the power of sin that dwells in us. Before we could ever do sin, before we ever commit sin, there's a ruling power that lives within all of us. When the first Adam rebelled, the first man rebelled against God, he threw all of humanity into a state where we're no longer free, but ruled by the governing power of sin and all its corruptions. Why do we do the things that we do? Why is the history of the world, the history marked by war and conflict? Why, when you put two little kids in a room, will they not share their toys joyfully? Um, Because sin is ruling all of Humanity under its power. It is a controlling power. That's what Paul means by the flesh. The controlling, dominating power of sin that is, holds, us, holds us captive and makes us do what we want to do and always leads to destruction. Because the events of history change things. But when God acts in history... He acts to create an actual fundamental change in the world. Now, as a congregation, if you're visiting with us, one of the things we do together as a congregation is we read the Bible together throughout the week. Not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And as we're reading through our Bibles together, we've been in the history of kings. Now, it's probably one of my least favorite parts of the Bible. Because it's just such a dark downturn in the life of God's people. It's one of the things I actually love about the Bible. It doesn't hide the dirty parts. It doesn't hide the broken parts. It's just very outward and honest about how things actually are. But as as Israel is falling into its darkness... God, because these are his people, won't let them stay this way. And we just finished the Elisha-Elijah narratives. And you see what? In those narratives, what God is doing is he's breaking into the brokenness of this world. And he's accomplishing something. An oil for a destitute woman who is poor and hopeless so that it bounds. Deliverance from oppressive armies. The dead are raised because the prophets are God's servants. Because God won't let this world fall under the power of sin forever and ever and ever. And morality will never be a sufficient answer. Because there is no human that can do enough good or be moral enough to break the reigning power of sin in this world. But verse 3. But God has done. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And this is how he did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. The old era of the broken oppressive power of sin that he destroyed by the death of his son. But we now live according to the spirit. Now we're set up for verse, back to verse 9. You however are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and tethers you to Jesus with an unbreakable bond and as a result brings you with a grounded hope into the future verse 10 but if Christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness you're no longer if you're in Christ tethered to the brokenness and oppression of the first man's sin, you're now tethered to the life-giving power of the second Adam who has won and takes you into his new creation. That is an unbreakable bond and an unbreakable destiny. And here's how he compares the ends of these two epics. One ends in death and the other ends in life. So God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that in Jesus, Jesus died the death we should have died by taking upon himself the punishment for sin in his body, that is, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He bore our guilt. God condemned sin in Jesus' body. And when it reached its end, death. That's where it ends. Condemnation and death under the wrath of God. Now, if you're not in Christ, flee from that era. It only ends in one place condemnation and death. But in Jesus, because God condemned him. In our place, verse 12, that era ends with condemnation and death. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, but, if you're, not a, if you're just joining us, visiting us with us today, this is always the heart of the gospel. But God. But God. If you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You want to see where sin and condemnation ends? Look at the cross and you'll see. But if you want to see where the kingdom of God leads, look at the resurrection and you'll see. Alive forevermore. And that's what the Spirit does. He tethers us to Jesus and to the new creation era that has no end. So think about the resurrection of Jesus like this. It's like the process. This is what living the resurrection now is like the process of being engaged and then married. In that process, we begin to live for the future, in the present. When the ask 
is made in the engagement and the answer is given. The ring is put on the finger and that begins a new epic where we live for the coming reality. In that event, everything is changed. It sets you definitively towards a new end and that new end breaks into the present and changes day-to-day life. I remember when Jill and I got engaged on the side of a mountain in Beersheba Springs. The glorious event, my bride said yes. We entered into a new era and on our way home back to Columbia, she says to me, well, let's, let's stop at Dillard's and register for some things. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that was fun. But now everything has changed and we need to start living in light of the future reality that's coming. And I realized we can both enjoy the new epic that we're living in as a result of this event and do the work that this new reality privileges us with. And that's what happens during the engagement. All of life has begun to live in light of the coming reality. Engagement parties are thrown. Not because you're engaged, but because you will be married one day. Showers are thrown. And what is happening in that moment is people are saying to you, we want to give you gifts that will prepare you for what is to come. Not celebrating the engagement, but the pending marriage. You're acknowledging in that event. You celebrate with the, you pre-celebrate in essence. You pre-celebrate. What's coming one day. And so. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. You see what he's saying in essence is this. Hey, all you single ladies, Jesus put a ring on him. (laughs) And that ring is the Holy Spirit who brings you into the new reality. And death will not be the final end of the story. It won't even be the thing that marks day-to-day life anymore, as we'll see. But resurrection will be for the people of God. Because what is true about Jesus is true about you in part, but not yet in full. So verse 12, we live in light of this new reality, this new creation reality. So then brothers and sisters, we're not debtors. We're not bound in an inseparable way to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you buy the spirit, you put to deeds the Death, the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Verse 14. For all who led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, if you're tempted in that point to insert sons and daughters, don't. Here's why. He means sons and daughters. But he's chosen sons because he's linking us inseparably to the Son of God. Your sons in the Son. You have all the rights and privileges 
including being bound to him by the spirit of the resurrection and Jesus. So I want us to walk out the door with just three things. Not three things to do, but three things to embrace, just to remember. right? Because this is what hope does. Hope remembers these things. First, and I'm going to do this in reverse order, so skip down to verse 16. It's really the end of 17 that we want to look at, but I want us to tether this back. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, sons in the Son. What belongs to Jesus belongs to you if you belong to Jesus. He has given you a spirit that binds you to him. And so you're co-heirs with him, reigning with him. Children of God with him, provided we suffer. That we will also be glorified with him. It's funny how much expectations can affect us. The Proverbs remind us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. We don't want to have triumphalistic expectations for what the grounded hope in the resurrection of Jesus gives us in this life or else we'll find our hearts sick. And so Paul reminds us, provided you suffer with him and also that you'll be glorified with him. It's good to remember that while in the epic of the new creation has begun in Jesus' resurrection, we really still are in the engagement, not the honeymoon. Now is the time for working and waiting in anticipation of what will come. So set your expectations. The reason we need hope is because in united to Jesus, we will suffer for him. In fact, God never grows his people apart from suffering. Suffering is the place where the hope of the resurrection breaks in and means so meaningful. So don't get surprised by suffering. You're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now is the time for working and waiting. Second, as we suffer for him, don't fall back into fear. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not what God has given his people. Not the spirit of condemnation and fear. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 8 starts with this bold declaration. Because God has crucified his son and the era of condemnation has ended. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because God's condemnation for sin was poured out on his son who drank it till it was done and dry. Nothing left for God to give. So don't fall back into fear because God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Bill Bright tells this old story. During the Depression, a field was owned by a ranch owner. The ranch owner, people weren't buying a lot of extra meat during the depression and so he was going destitute and broke 
couldn't buy his family food or clothes. He was living on government subsidy, like many families were at the time. Day after day, he just grazed his sheep over those West Texas hills. And then a crew from an oil company showed up and came into the area and said, I want to buy the rights to the minerals underneath. They drew a wildcat well, exploring what was there. And at over a thousand feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. Many subsequent wells were drilled, drilled twice as large. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, it came back and said, there's just more flow there than we ever imagined. And that man owned it all. Owned it all. He had been living on governmental relief while he was a millionaire living in poverty. Because he didn't know it was there. And I'm afraid most of us live the Christian life that way. Never tapping down into the resources of the resurrection of Jesus that is at our disposal, freely given to us, and to whom the Spirit draws us constantly. And so our third point is this. How do we tap into that? It's just simply this. Listen to the voice of the Spirit of the resurrection that speaks, who speaks, assurance to us. Instead of listening to the voice of sin and Satan that speak condemnation to us. We've got to learn to recognize the difference in accents. It may sound the same. But the spirit of Jesus. Doesn't speak heaps of accusations. And guilt. And condemnation. Because he comes from the one who was condemned for our sin. And has united us to himself. And if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You don't have to fall back into fear. They sound the same. But it's the enemy who is the slanderer and the accuser. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It really is hard to believe that these truths that are ours in Christ, that are our birthrights as co-heirs of the kingdom, as members of the new creation, united to the bridegroom who loves us, it's really hard to hear his voice. When inside of us, our own conscience is crying out all the time, you've not done enough. You transgressed that law again. You've broken your promise here. You've not measured up in all the ways that we've had. And so Jesus says, it's not enough for me just to simply do this. I'm going to give you my voice who's going to speak with my power. And what he's going to speak is not fear, but life. Verse 5. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we'll be glorified with God so wants you, the Father so wants you to know what he's done in his son that he's given you the unquenchable, undestroyable, and unsilenceable voice of his own spirit. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so that he's constantly saying 
to you. You're God's child. He loves you. I live, some of you have heard me say this before, I live with a story that runs through my head. It's, the, it's a false story, but it just runs through my head all the time, and it goes like this. When you perform, then you'll be loved. And I'm a fairly driven individual on the surface. I look pretty put together with some con- a little bit of competence and a little bit of abilities, but not all that much. But what you don't know is that there's an engine that drives most of it, and it's that false story. When you perform, then you'll be loved. And just the other day, I was, I was on my knees before the Lord and begging him, when will it ever be enough? When will I have performed enough to be loved? And these words rung in my ears. You don't have to perform for me. And in that moment, the angst and the dread and the misery just washed completely away. And my heart settled down into joy. You could look in those eyes, in me in those eyes and look me dead in the eyes and say that to me. I would not believe you and that would not be the response. But when the Spirit bears witness to our spirit, that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God, fellow heirs with Christ. That testimony comes with power. It settles us down. It causes joy to erupt. Because it settles us deeper. He settles us by testifying to our spirit. He settles us deeper into God's promises. And that means you have to use the tools of the Spirit to hear the voice of the Spirit. Or what we just simply call the means of grace. That is the means that the Spirit employs to strengthen us for the war, for the work, for the waiting. He takes God's Word, convinces us that it's true, not just intellectually, but deep into our spirit so that we then cry out, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. A few years ago in 2018, 12 Thai soccer players and their coach got stuck in a cave. Little boys, when the early monsoon rains came unexpected and flooded the cave that they were in, It's an amazing story of of rescue. It's been on the news. There is a tremendous Netflix documentary on it. And they tell the story that they first went to the most competent people they knew in Thailand, to the Navy SEALs of Thailand, who were untrained. One of them died in the process, just entrance, close to the entrance to the cave. They didn't know how to get these boys out. By chance, word got back to a bunch of nobody cave divers from England, or rather, misfit crew called themselves by their own testimony we're just a bunch of nerds who get relaxed when we're in caves so they Thai government connected with them just in a happenstance and the rescue came from these misfits from another world who were uniquely capable 
of entering into the darkness of that cave. It was miles long. It was incredible technical diving. Only a few could traverse. It had to come from outside. They could not swim themselves out. They had to come from the world where there's life and where air can be breathed and where, the, where there's green and food. But you know, these boys, they couldn't just rescue them. It wasn't enough for them just to swim in and swim the boys out. There was a long journey from the moment they arrived where the boys were. So they entered from the outside world to take the boys back to the place of life. The only way to get the boys out was to sedate them so that they could hook on a breathing apparatus. They knew these boys, the journey was just too much for them to handle. They knew these boys would, would freak out and die in the process. So they sedated them. And it was a long journey, so they would have to re-sedate them again. And then again. And then they brought them safely through the darkness of the muddy waters into the world from which they had left to come rescue. It's a little glimpse, isn't it, into what Paul's saying here? But what Jesus does is so much better. Because he doesn't sedate us for the journey. He's come from the outside world to rescue us. And then breathes new life into us by his spirit. So that when he testifies to us of the sufficiency of Jesus. And the depths of the father's love. We could breathe as he brings us back to his new creation. For if you've died with him, you will also live with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are in need of the breathing apparatus of the gospel and the strengthening power of your spirit. And so as we come to your table this morning. We do so looking back. At your finished work on the cross. But also forward. Because you promised that we'll do this. Until you come again. And then we'll sit at the wedding supper of the lamb. Raised to new life. With him. Who was raised to new life. No one can stop you. And so feed us and strengthen us by your spirit, we pray. In your name, our Savior. Amen.